You're listening to a Metro podcast. You're listening to Metropolis, Metro News' podcast about life in Canadian cities. I'm your co-host Luke Simcoe, and I'm here with Vas Bednar and Matt Elliott. So, I want to start this episode just by admitting that I have a lot of like feels today. Uh, there's some news. It's uh, a very special episode of Metropolis. Yeah, and a bittersweet episode, I think. Um, and why is that, Vass? Well, partially it's because I'm leaving the show and you're always upset when I'm not here. If I miss an episode, and now I'm going to miss all the rest of the episodes, every single one. Yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be on the other side as a as a listener. I am uh, leaving the Martin Prosperity Institute at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and I'm joining the Airbnb public policy team here in Canada. And I'll be working on some of the public policy related to getting home sharing regulations right so at least like the name of your employer yeah, will thinking. be shorter keep <laughs> that's like 90 yeah. percent of it that was yeah. my, shorter main, name. my main criteria for a job change yeah how many yeah. syllables <laughs> um no but there are there are some other uh reasons you have feelings as well yeah i've got some feelings i am leaving metro news after four and a half years as a reporter here uh covering everything from victoria bc to urbanism in Canada and Toronto, uh, I'm leaving journalism. I'm going to take a, a job as at a yet unnamed, uh, exciting national nonprofit that's launching in the spring. Uh, I'm going to be doing communications for them, and I'm really excited about it, although I'm really sad to be leaving Metro. I kind of um, came of age as a reporter and an urbanist uh, at the newspaper. And um, yeah, so I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm emo about the whole thing, I think, you know, it's... it's uh, one door opens and another closes, and we'll see sort of where that takes me. But the good news is that I'm still going to be here in this chair uh, talking to you guys and talking with you guys. So uh, Metropolis will soldier on uh, in Vass's absence. It's like our show got gentrified and I got bulldozed <laughs> and you closed, but there's you're still there. Like it's just the building has a new use. And Matt, you just you're protected. Like you're like heritage status or something. I, like uh, No one can mess with you. Good, good podcasts need old yeah. Yeah. hosts. You're, the old, you're the, like the old person sitting on their porch, yeah. like shaking their fist at They're the condo development across the street. Have to drag and, me out of here in a box. Bag. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> shockingly morbid. Um, so, as a counterpoint, kind of to all this, you know, all these feels and all of this morbidity, courtesy yep. of Matt, um, I think I've decided to sort of process all my feels uh, by talking about animals, um, everyone's favorite topic. Uh, my girlfriend and I just finished watching Planet Earth Two. Uh, totally recommend it uh, if you. Uh, are into animals, the environment, incredibly well-narrated British documentaries, uh, and cities, because the last segment is actually all about urban wildlife, and it really got me thinking. There's all these amazing stories about, like, monkeys in India and jaguars that live in the city and, like, feast on domestic pets, and even Toronto's raccoons make a cameo. And it really sort of got me thinking just about the relationship between sort of urbanism and wildlife. It's not something that we necessarily talk about a lot, but I think there's cool things to be learned by how animals have adapted to the city and how we've adapted to having animals in our cities. And maybe there's this idea that, you know, we, we often talk about amazing cities are great places. Like it's the best city is the best place to be a kid or the best city is the best place to be an elderly person or, you know, the best place is the best place for a tourist. But maybe the greatest city is like the greatest city to be a raccoon in, right? And sort of what lessons we learned from that. Like there's lots of green space and, you know, you can kind of, you know, coexist with, you know, other sorts of animals, be they human or not. And sort of, you know, what that sort of teaches us about cities. So I kind of just wanted to ask you guys like about an anecdote, you know, like what's a time that you've sort of experienced wildlife in an urban context and maybe it made you think or, you know, question something about the city that you live in. So I know Matt has some stories about squirrels. So I think we'll yes. start there. Uh, I had a squirrel get in my house this past summer. I was uh, upstairs. My partner Aaron was downstairs and I hear this giant crash and I say, hey, what was that? And Aaron says, like I should have known, she just sort of says it flatly, there's a squirrel in our house. And she go gets the baseball bat, and I <laughs> go 
to like, I don't know, like I'm on Google saying, what do you do when you have a squirrel in your house? Um, and it all worked out okay in the end, but we never actually saw the squirrel leave our house because Aaron went to get the bat and I went to uh get my squirrel fighting outfit on. <laughs> and uh, by the time we had assembled to try to get rid of the squirrel, because at the time it was sort of like flinging itself against our front window again and again and again, like it just so desperately wanted to be out of there. And our cats were just looking at it like, this isn't right, which is weird because the reason you get cats is for situations <laughs> like this. Um, but uh, we never saw it leave. So for the entire summer, every time I was in the basement, or somewhere in the house and I heard a rustling noise, I was convinced it was the squirrel still like lurking in the house somewhere and just like eating my wires and insulation and whatever else. But uh, never came across a squirrel again. So I am like 99% sure it uh, left the house and went on other adventures. But it, it was not like my parents' cottage way up north in Ontario had animals get in the house all the time. But this was my first occurrence of actually having an animal get inside my city home. And it was a nice reminder that, uh, you know, we do coexist with these squirrels and other animals in the city. And uh, I would not want to go through it again. But uh, sure, reminded me that wildlife is a thing. Absolutely. Bass, what do you Keeping got? it wild. I mean, I have a quick squirrel thing. Just... Uh when I was in grad school, I there was a transfer student from Berlin, and I brought him to my parents' place in Hamilton to experience Thanksgiving. And I was asking him, you know, what does he like about Toronto? What does he think about Canada? And he actually brought up squirrels right away that he likes them because he, they, they were new to him. So I've always appreciated that, and I try to, like, bring that charm and, like, wonder to when I see squirrels because they're pretty boring. Mm-hmm. And... They drop stuff. Like Speak I'm like, for oh. yourself. I'm like, all, every time I'm like, squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> like, you dropped your chestnut. Like, come on. Ontario squirrels are different than like squirrels in Nova Scotia and stuff. Like, so I do understand. Oh, I love Why the red squirrels this? in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're red and cute and small. Yeah. No, it's like different. I think that's interesting. Like different cities sort of have their wildlife that defines mm. the city. Um, I had wildlife come to define you know it was like a commute became a community building experience because there was a mysterious and gaping hole in the very small kind of lawn uh where outside the front of the house where we live and uh you know we were consulting a lot like hey what lives there is it a rat where's the other part side of the hole is there another part of the hole is this a tunnel going somewhere um should we poison it how do we poison it what's the best way to poison it has anyone seen an animal i thought maybe it could be a bunny and i was kind of waiting for like a bunch of baby bunnies to just come out of the hole one day (laughs) it didn't happen um you know neighbors ventured it could be a skunk someone had seen a skunk around town they thought maybe it lived with us (laughs) um and uh we put a bunch of rocks down there and, and poison and covered it up. But in the spring, the hole was back. So we know it survived. So we know it's resilient. Then we're like, we got to meet this animal because it's incredible. And I put a piece of wood over top because I was like, peep this. If the wood moves, then I know the animal came out. Right. And the wood moved, but we never saw the animal. You needed like a surveillance camera or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How do I experience wildlife as it, you know, creeps up against the boundaries of where we live, maybe? <laughs> it wasn't hurling itself at my at my window. I don't think it came in the house, but that's my anecdote. <laughs> yeah, but what's kind of interesting sort of about both of those, well, perhaps Matt's more than Vass's, is that we have a kind of antagonistic relationship with animals in the city, right? Like they're an intruder in your house or they're a pest that needs to be poisoned, right? You know, whose mysterious tunnels creeping everyone out. <laughs> and what's kind of neat is there's cities, I think that's kind of increasingly like maybe a North American or Western sort of thing you hear of, as you often do, like cities in, in developing countries tend to be more like dynamic and kind of interesting and experimental. Um, but one of the things on this Planet Earth documentary is, was this uh, kind of Singapore has been doing some really cool stuff around urban wildlife and just sort of urban nature, right? There are like lots of green roofs and they encourage habitat. You know, for green roofs, like there's places where spider species can like flourish, you know, on top of a building somewhere, you know, or um, – you know, just places where sort of wildlife is encouraged to gather in the city and not kind of poisoned or chased out with a baseball bat, you know, <laughs> and these sorts of things. And it kind of gives us, I don't know, a, a different sort of appreciation. But I, I think, like, doesn't that also benefit 
us in so many ways, right? Like, I don't know, but like, I like seeing squirrels, yeah, right? I, I ever, like, I follow raccoons around when I'm like, when I see them, like, on my walk home from the subway <laughs> and stuff like that. They do lead interesting lives. Yeah, <laughs> right? And so, but also these spaces, when you create spaces for animals, you're actually creating, like, really cool spaces for people. Yeah, that's what I was going right? to say. Yeah. Like, it's an... I don't want to say it's an unintended consequence of increasing a city's green space, but it is something that comes with that. Uh, they recently built a very, very nice park near my house uh, called Corktown Common. And one of the things that is impressive about it is you walk through there in the spring or you know on a summer night and you actually hear frogs you know, in the pond. And it's like it's it's downtown Toronto, but you can actually hear this kind of nature right in the middle of the city, and that's really cool. On the other hand, you know, you hear about places that have, you know, the city uh, has a ravine going through it, or, or bigger parks where you actually are starting to see coyotes and things like that move back into the city, which again, not necessarily a bad thing, but does create uh, some need to let people know that you are now going to be living with wildlife that you may not expect to be living with. The other one is, do we kind of have a responsibility to do that, right? And like. You know, human development is one of the biggest causes of sort of habitat loss, you know, for animals. And I've been kind of wondering about, you know, and this is very David Attenborough of me, but like the ethics of that, right? Like if we're and cities are growing all over the world, they're Mm -hmm. getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they're paving over more and more space. And only some animals get to adapt to that, right? Like the raccoon, totally successful here. Apparently there are more peregrine falcons per square like mile in New York than anywhere else in the world. So there's, you know, some of them succeed, but other ones don't, right? And so, you know, I wonder if we'll get to a point where we kind of feel like we have as urbanists or urban planners or the people who are in charge of cities if they have like an ethical responsibility to ensure that as we build another suburban tract house we also build like an equal amount of green roofs or something to replace that like where do we go from there turns out the nonprofit he's going to work for is called urban animals (laughs) (laughs) national Well, actually, maybe, well, maybe we can just what we do is instead of like making permanent homes for the animals, we actually just find people who have the backyards that they can rent to the animals yeah, on yeah, short right. periods of time. <laughs> do you want to live with backyard share? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Have, have you guys been like in, in your travels or anything? Have you seen kind of interesting examples where sort of wildlife have been accommodated in, in planning? I don't know about accommodated. I've been to places where there are like more monkeys on the streets than you see in Toronto, definitely. And people just sort of roll with it, you know? I don't think I pay enough attention to the biodiversity of like places that I go. Do you wish you paid more attention to biodiversity? Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Do you have an example? (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) No, I, I don't know. I think... Yeah, I guess I wish I had more examples, right? Like now this has been something that I think is is kind of in, intrigues me. Like I, I'm, I'm always, before I've been like, I want to go travel to places that have amazing transportation systems. Like right. that's been like my wonky travel habit or something like that. Um, and so now maybe I want to, you know, travel to Singapore and see all these cool sort of innovations and see what we can bring back, you know. Um, but I, like it strikes me as something that, we shouldn't have to look, especially in Canada, we shouldn't have to look outside of ourselves to find really good ways to do this, right? We, so what, like maybe in Toronto and Calgary and Vancouver, we don't, we see more pigeons and, you know, raccoons than we do other things, but all across our country, we have people like coexisting with moose and polar bears and all these things to be kind of stereotypical, but it's true. Like we should be looking at ourselves for examples of this. Like we have lots of wildlife and we have lots of opportunities to sort of experience that. And we've really done a big kind of divide, right? And you can see this even in like Canada 150, we're all getting passes to our national parks and national parks are obviously a great thing, but sure. you know, they're separate. They're a way that you got to get in a car, you got to drive to them and that kind of stuff. And so yet we probably have really great examples of like little interesting interventions that people have made to, to better coexist with rather than to sort of antagonize or to eliminate, you know, wildlife. Right. And so that maybe is kind of just a, a little thing to keep an eye on in 2017 and, and to think as we all visit our national parks to think about how to bring pieces of those back to the cities that we increasingly sort of find ourselves living in. So. Not literally though, listeners do not <laughs> take animals from the national parks and bring them to your city. I just want to be very clear about that. Coming up next, we're going to talk about libraries with Matt. Stay with us. You're listening to Metropolis. Welcome back to Metropolis. 
So it's budget season in the city of Toronto, one of my favorite times of the year, and I assume everyone else's. Uh, and of course, we can't have a municipal budget process without at least some suggestion that, hey, maybe we should take a budget axe to the library. So this year in Toronto, one of the options on the table for balancing the budget is a $6 million cut in service hours, eliminating roughly 50 library jobs. Uh, relax, it's almost certainly not going to happen, uh, but... It does have me thinking about libraries and the future of libraries because they often seem to be standing on the budget brink. Uh, I took a quick cruise through the headlines before this show looking for examples, and there are a lot of them. In April, the library board in Newfoundland and Labrador announced that more than half of the province's libraries would close after a provincial budget cut. Uh, in Richmond, B.C. this summer, library users were angry because the libraries were no longer open uh, in the evenings in some cases. And in North Bay, Ontario, the library is asking for more money from the municipality to maintain the free Wi-Fi service they offer in the wake of a provincial grant cut. So there are lots of examples and even more where libraries are struggling because of the U.S. dollar, because books are, of course, priced in U.S. dollars in most cases. So that increases the cost of providing library service as well in a lot of ways. So uh, I want to talk about libraries as a concept in the wake of all this budget nonsense. There are lots of competing views out there, so let's start with a big, broad question, as I like to do. Uh, Vass and Luke, what does the ideal library look like in your mind in 2017? Big, small, lots of books? What does it look like? Oh, man, this is a topic that's so close to my heart all throughout my youth, like from the time I was like a skateboarding punk teenager to <laughs> when I finished my undergrad. I worked in the public library system in, in, in Burnaby, BC, just outside of Vancouver, uh, and I love libraries. Uh, I'm a staunch defender of literally everything they represent. The, the idea that you know, information is so important and that anyone, regardless of like race, class, or creed, can have some kind of access to it um, is something that I really like believe in and get kind of teary-eyed about. Um, it's a very emotional episode. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just, I, we, we need to like the box of tissues on the, <laughs> on the desk. But yeah, so I don't know, but it's interesting, right? As someone who used to work in libraries, and, and it's funny because I, I started shelving books. Like, I put books back in order, and it's that's interesting because increasingly libraries are less and less about books, right? Um, we have other ways of getting books. Um, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, need libraries to serve that function as much, but that's what makes them precisely something that's really interesting and probably, frankly, worthy of investment right now is they're interesting little laboratories in alternative community formation, right? They can do, they can provide other services. They can, you know, be a, a place where people of different sort of, you know, races, classes, creeds, et cetera, can gather and intermingle. You know, they can sort of provide literacy skills for technology and other things that maybe schools or other places aren't, um, you know, providing. And they also serve an unacknowledged social function. They're a place where sort of lower income people, sometimes homeless people, gather and congregate throughout the day. And that's something that library staff increasingly sort of learn to deal with. And, and man, I can tell you stories, but they're not really fit for the, <laughs> the, the podcast about that. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I, an ideal library to me looks like a laboratory. It doesn't look the same on Monday as it does on Tuesday. Um, they're trying new things all the time, and they're, you know, sort of, I guess the only sort of broader mandate is that they should engage with technology, and you see them doing that, right? Like libraries are places where you can rent 3D printers and, you know, these sorts of things. So that's, you know, that's, I guess, sort of, I don't have like a, a static picture in my mind, but I think that's the point. Vass, thoughts on libraries? Um my initial thought is that my boyfriend designs libraries, so I wish I could phone, so cool. a, phone a more than a friend here. <laughs> but since I can't, um, I think the most interesting dimension of thinking about the design, of course, echoing everything that Luke's saying about technology and laboratory is, you know, libraries are being designed with the thought of that they are, they are community hubs. So for all our language about community hubs and all our aspirations, it's already happening that's where, you know, it's going on at the library. And as much as I'm a champion of the library, I actually find myself using it less and less. Mm. So it, it, that tension between wanting to, you know, wanting to be a champion, acknowledging the great work that's happening at our libraries, not wanting to see them close, not wanting to see cuts, but then also maybe feeling like I'm not participating in that library ecosystem too. Though as a, as a, a child and growing up, uh, those literacy programs were a huge part of uh, after school and weekends yeah. with my mom and my twin and, uh, you know, summer reading programs that solved the gap. I mean, gave me something to do in the summer, probably. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for that. Like watching my name go across like, oh, how many I books I read. That's, I was like, mom, is it summer? Like I've got to go read books at the library. <laughs> Just give me so, all the R.L. Stein you have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I will yes. plow through yes. 40 of these. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking around it, but w- what does it look like? I mean, high high design as much as possible if it's like a new library and then a lot of open space so that there's a lot of flexibility in terms of different groups getting together, people helping each other out with their taxes or, you know, after school reading programs and um, researching job preparation, job skills, mentorship, job search, all of that stuff is happening at the libraries. And the more we can facilitate that, the better. One of the more interesting programs, I briefly worked uh, at the library actually here in Toronto too for like a couple of months during my master's degree. And they had a program where every week kids, they just brought in all the coolest new video games and kids from around town could play them. And I thought that was kind of, it was actually kind of, I don't know, beautiful in a way, right? Like it speaks to this idea that these kids didn't have these at home. But I can only imagine that when you're like eight years old and you go to school and kids are all talking about the latest video game that you don't have and have never played, you know, that's not like there's barriers that's like immediately just keep compounding after that. And the fact that these kids can come and they can like play Nintendo Wii and then talk about it at school and like have some sense of things just felt so like inclusive and just kind of a, a symbol of like how something small like making video games publicly available can actually have like these broader sort of repercussions so that's kind of maybe an example of like a modern library piece of programming that fulfills sort of those older mandates yeah sometimes i will use the libraries in this city to as a place to write on my laptop or whatever just because they are quiet places with internet which is great uh and it always doesn't surprise me but i always find it so notable when i'm there around three or three thirty in the afternoon and the schools let out and suddenly there's just this flood of kids that come in just looking to use the computers to play minecraft or whatever it is you know and there's some people that say well they should be reading but you know they are engaging and they're building and they're learning and uh, they may not have computers at home so this is a great way for them to to experience that and get access to this kind of thing which is you can't sell that short as a thing that exists in the city no so then why are they so look we're here just yeah. gushing about our love for libraries yeah. and, and you know and they hit on all these sort of like right. political hot points they're like great for kids sure. you know these sorts of things so why why do you think they're always the first thing that gets like offered up as a ritual sacrifice in budget season <laughs> I, I do I I there's a story I want to tell really quickly. Um, about five years ago, I met with somebody who worked in the mayor's office in Toronto, the previous mayor to this one. Um, and we sat down, we talked about lots of different things. And one of the things we talked about was libraries. And he said, you know, he didn't really expect there to be this sort of outpouring of public support for libraries uh, that came during the last mayoral administration. And I said to him, well, you know, people are using libraries for more than just books. It's a place for people to work and study and use computers and and get online and all that stuff. And he said something to me like, well, isn't that just what Starbucks is? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that tension. I think think reading, I think we're reviewing libraries that where that narrative comes from is looking at libraries as, you know, a source of leisure, Mm -hmm. you know, you you know, if you have extra time, why not pop by the library and, you know, get a book for, for your pleasure and your downtime. And that narrative of course makes libraries seem superfluous and indulgent. And, you know, that kind of camp is not able to see the multiple utilities and kind of service provision and what's actually happening in libraries. And then sometimes back to the community hubs when people get up and they're like, well, we need to invest and do this in community hubs. We do need to make them more sophisticated. But I'm like, they're at the library. Just (laughs) go. Like, do you go to the library? Yeah. Go. No, there is uh, an interesting thing where I think like the library and what we used to call or still call a community center, those sorts of uses are, are coming together to be more of the same thing. That's like a good flowchart, right? It's like, yeah. are you are you advocating for a, like an expansion of a social program? You know, mm. have you been to the library lately? Is that program there? Yes or no? You know, right. So on and so forth. It's a good, yeah. Yeah. No. I, absolutely. And I do think like part of this is just communities need spaces to hang out. And the problem I had with the why not just go to Starbucks thing is that a lot of people can't afford to hang out in Starbucks all day and buy five dollar lattes or flat whites or whatever it is you buy at, at Starbucks. Tall Americano Misto. Tall Americano. Um, yeah, but those are not cheap, right? So this idea that libraries sort of work as this great equalizer is something that we can't forget. And I do think it's something that people believe in really strongly. One of the things I'm interested in, though, is like, in my mind, when I think about what the ideal library looks like in 2017, I think, you know, maybe they should be moving towards there being lots of libraries and them being smaller sort of storefront things. But 
the trend, and maybe it's not a trend, but we see it in Halifax with the new gigantic central library they built there. We talked about that on the show in the past. And also in Ottawa, they just announced plans to spend $160 million on a new central library. So we are seeing these giant libraries being built in cities as well. Um, And I just like, why the big libraries? Do you guys have any theories on that? Um, our library, it's like the new city hall. I don't know, a statement piece of architecture. Yeah. It's like you didn't mention like a, architecture before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. I mean, in term to the extent that we put public dollars into good architecture, I think libraries are primarily that vehicle. It's hard to even, you know, a new Metrolink station or mm-hmm. a new GO station. We can kind of do our best with the des- design there, but there's a practicality. I think that always comes through. Whereas libraries give us some playfulness and let us stand out. So maybe that's part of the the kind of lust for new library investment. I'd be curious, like obviously I, this idea of like dif- libraries like diffusing more sort of broadly into you know, our public realm and is intriguing, but I'd be curious to know if they're thinking about cutting the library budget in Halifax. Right. Right? Because that thing, that library, that building has been so celebrated and it's like put Halifax on the map in certain ways and it's become this point of pride and everyone likes it. But every single time someone raves about that building, they're also raving about the library. And I wonder if these big statement pieces, like what you're making or what what you're talking about, actually kind of help counteract that kind of political tension to or political like aim to to cut the funding to that service right because it seems like a lot harder if you're like the library's so great shouldn't we defund it yeah right exactly. it's kind of a hard like it's kind of a hard line to sell <laughs> yeah, symbols are important and when you have this big symbol in the city of this that everybody is proud of that does i think uh, engender some pride in well, the system another benefit of new library builds is that they typically have some component that can be monetized so we see this in toronto the toronto reference library they make money hosting events there that's true selling drinks um the halifax library at the very top has a beautiful cafe and a rooftop thing i'm not saying those funds directly. a green roof yeah. where green you roof. can see birds and butterflies <laughs> <laughs> yes but i mean those those are those are tiny tiny kind of tinkering at the margin sort of things, but I think they help make the libraries more vibrant too. If you can go, you know, you go to work at the library because it's quiet and you get internet, well, do you ever get a coffee while you're there? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And libraries as event spaces, I think, is a huge thing as well because... You can get married in libraries. You could get married in a library. Has anyone done that? Not in this room. (laughs) (laughs) I have not done that. Uh, but yeah, no, that, that's interesting because I do, you know, I was thinking about churches the other day and how churches are uh, sort of fading away in relevance in some cities. And churches were a big venue for community events and community meetings and this kind of thing. And the libraries may be picking up some of that slack. We've talked about technology as well. And uh, I'm thinking about some of the cool applications that I've heard available to library here in Toronto. Um, things like 3D printers being available, yes. that kind of stuff. And I know that I think this is separate than from the actual library in Toronto, but even things like letting people borrow tools and stuff at the tool library. Uh, the library that I used to go to when I was a kid in Montreal rented toys. Hmm. It was it was really cool. I'm sure it was entirely unsanitary. Yeah, 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 I saw a vast error face, um, but it was great. Like as, yeah. again, like as like a sort of a lower income kid growing up in Montreal, like I couldn't always afford a new toy, and mm-hmm. so but I always got to you know experience a little something different. And it sort of I guess it goes back to that video game thing I was making before. But it's a kind of yeah. cool example of what yeah. uh, just a small different thing they could be doing. Yeah, another cool things that they've done in Toronto are things like being able to uh, take out passes to the museums and art galleries and things like that, which uh, is a really in neat use of the library. And uh, the Wi-Fi hotspot thing that yeah. was a pilot project of the last year in Toronto. That kind of thing, I think, is unbelievably important. Being able Although to- I think that's precisely what they're looking to cut in yeah, the budget, Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's not something that's permanent yet. But the ability for uh, somebody who may not be able to afford a monthly internet plan, being able to get inter- access to the internet for a, a weekend or a week or whatever, uh, free of charge of the library card, like that's a powerful idea. But also I, I like that it's sort of internet with dignity. You, yeah. don't, you don't have to sit there and do your whatever you're doing on the internet like right. at, at the library for 25 minutes before you time runs out and these kinds of things. It's just like you can take the internet home and use it however you want. Yeah. You know, and, and there, I think that's a different experience than kind of being relegated to kind of, you know, sit in the corner and use the internet. Yeah. So before we wrap up our, our library conversation, I started by asking you guys what your ideal library looked like 
today. Uh, let's like do a bit of time travel. If we go like 30, 40 years into the future, do are libraries still a thing in cities? Uh, and what do they look like? Oh, I'm sure our stubborn refusal to ever raise property taxes <laughs> has meant that libraries have been like relegated to sort of large empty warehouses where you can just throw books ad hoc onto the floor and some people might come and get them. And All library I, workers uh, are drones at that yeah. point. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know because, like I said, I think I hope they're just constantly changing and evolving. Like I said, but it, it strikes me. I don't know. One thing I just want to add is that we're talking about things that, like, you think you'd be able to sell this in terms of a budget, right? You're you're talking about services that are already happening. So every time you're like looking at a community center, you can be like, oh, actually, we can be more efficient in our spending by you know using these pre-existing spaces that already have the expertise and sort of infrastructure to deliver these programs. And maybe we just need to talk about them in a different way. And as Vass said, they're not superfluous. And I think if we sort of actually just started to really dig into the math, I'm sure you could make really compelling sort of budgetary cases for these things. But who knows? Vass, you optimistic about libraries in the future? Yes, to the extent that no matter what the technologies look like that we're using, I'm optimistic that libraries will still be uh, serving our most vulnerable populations in cities and safe spaces where they're welcome, where there are services designed and tailored for them, and where they can learn and build skills and connect with other people and build networks. So as long as that's happening, I don't really care what um, the library looks like, but I hope it's really beautiful. <laughs> Architecture <laughs> I hope is it's important. super cute. Yeah, <laughs> best library ever. Nice. Uh, yeah, libraries. One final reminder: it's 2017. If you haven't re- renewed your library card lately, you should do that. And we'll be back in a second. Vass will be telling us all about youth unemployment and how to fix it. While we've been doing this podcast, actually, off the side of my desk and on the weekends, I've been chairing a federal panel. It's the expert panel on youth employment, actually, Matt. So positive <laughs> language for ah. what is really looking at youth unemployment. And um, I'm excited to make some connections uh, at the city level, even though it is a federal panel. We use the OECD definition of youth, which might make you laugh, but it's actually 15 to 29. Yeah. So I know. Luke's I've face. only been an adult for four years. <laughs> Our newly minted adults. Um, You know, obviously there's some problematic uh, kind of dimensions of that kind of large age span. Uh, You can kind of think about three mini cohorts there, 16 to 19, 20 to 24, 25 to 29, and not to universalize by any means the experience of young people making those transitions to work. But, you know, whether or not you're in the family home, whether you're not in school kind of makes a big difference. And... I mean, something we've been observing is that a lot of the labor market challenges that young people face are not necessarily uh, unique to that age cohort. So young people today, universally, regardless of parental income, are entering a world of work where there's uh, more involuntary part-time labor, more contract work, less kind of, though I find this comical that we call full-time permanent work, standard work. If you're an economist, that's actually standard. That Hmm. standard is changing. So there's this broader narrative about how the world of work is changing. And then there's all these opportunities for young people. It's a really uh, intergovernmental issue. A lot of the programs to help uh, youth with employment are designed and implemented provincially. So I'm getting to learn a lot about what's going on in different provinces. But when you drill down into the city level, um, in a lot of ways, uh, urban urban youth have slightly more opportunities overall. That's partially a volume and a density thing and a network kind of opportunity. Um, So they're interesting hubs in terms of employment options, but you kind of start to get into things that we've talked about with uh, transportation and connectivity and, you know, the city of neighborhoods, you know, place can also stigmatize. So the importance of blindness, you know, with with a resume, not, you know, people not maybe wanting to write their address or questioning, calling into question why that's a practice that we kind of still have, why it's so ingrained in, in how we hire. 
finally, just for my long intro, I mean, I could have done the whole Metropolis, just Vass's edition on youth employment, sorry, is um, we're looking at both supply side interventions. And I think that's a lot of the time when we talk about youth employment, that's what we're looking at services, programs, skills, workshops that we can do with young people to better prepare them, better, you know, equip them to compete. But there's also the kind of evaluation and championship of demand-led solutions. So if employers aren't at the table, if employers don't value employing young people, um, and you know, it doesn't kind of matter what you do on the other side of that. And part of that is just data and metrics right. and creating value around employing people who are 29 and under and saying that maybe recognizing to a certain extent that is a risk if you're t- if you're hiring someone who is fundamentally untested, you know, they don't have that quote unquote experience in the traditional work sense. And what I wanted to speak about with uh, you guys was how, you know, the role that cities have, not just in terms of like the city of Toronto and maybe the programming that they have there, but cities and uh, employment opportunities for young people and maybe something you think should be on my radar if it's not with the panel and hoping to share a couple of interesting uh, programs and interventions that I've been learning about that are happening at the city level. So I don't know, I just like even before we dive into all of that, I just kind of wanted to say something, and that's that I think what you just said and, and everything you've done is such a great example of why I'm going to miss having you on this podcast. And it's because <laughs> it's emotional again. Yeah, yes. No, that's, that's that's my mo. This whole like episode. Um, but Vass is the kind of person who chairs a federal panel on youth employment quote off the side of her desk yep. and. I don't know. That's it's oh. been, it's been cool having someone who is kind of so impressive and admirable sitting at the desk talking about the same things, and she's shaking her head because she's humble. But we are fully supported by a full time secretariat. Still impressive. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then again, and then it's just chock full of humility when you call her on it. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I just think that's really cool and worthy of of pointing out. And then the second thing I want to talk about is so glad if, that's if, recorded. If youth um, are like. If I am, as a 33-year-old, I'm not considered youth anymore by these standards, can't we have some kind of cool, like, hybrid name? Like, if we had tweens, can't I be, like, a yadult or something? <laughs> no, like, I mean, do we have- that's actually really – the semantic stuff has come up, and we touched on it in our interim report. So I actually can't really get up in front of a room of people in their mid to late 20s and use the language of youth. But that, that word youth does infantilize people who are young adults, right? Yep. You could call them career starters, career carvers. Um even young adults, I mean, it's tricky with that, right? But it's like new workers, like maybe that sounds like you're you're new to the country, but there there is better, more kind of uh, better, stronger, more kind of affirmative language we could be using to talk about, you know, new entrance to the labor force. Like, you know, language maybe seems frivolous in terms of reporting back to the federal government, but yeah, I think looking at looking at twenty four, twenty five, twenty seven year olds and their employment outcomes and writing that off as youth is is really tricky i'm going to suggest pupae okay that sounds a little dirty luke yeah yeah (laughs) it's a a metaphor (laughs) uh vast so the the problem statement i'm going to like generalize everything that's what i do perfect uh youth unemployment rates they are very high in most places across the country i assume and we want them to be lower right so uh how much of this is just like a numbers thing, like there's just more people looking for work than there are jobs, and how much of it is like a pathways thing, like people are not looking for the kind of work where jobs are available yeah. and, and vice versa. So for us with the panel, actually, it's not just like the urgency isn't just around the the binary between employment and unemployment. It's also digging into the dynamics of once people are getting work what does that work look like? What is their ability to retain it? And, you know, how do those early work experiences color a young person's perception and attitude towards work? Not only, you know, how does it affect their ability to fully participate in the economy, to save and plan for the future? You know, we talk about rents, we've talked about housing, a lot of different dimensions. If you're a young person in the city engaged in uh, precarious work, you may, you know, have trouble securing an apartment because you only have a contract for, you know, your probation period is X amount of time or you don't have a predictable income. That's that's a big deal. And that's also not confined to youth necessarily. Right. So I would say the problem statement is that 
uh, it's been a long time since the federal government has kind of shone a light on this population mm-hmm. and that there's a kind of window of policy opportunity. There's a professor I used to have who I would make so much fun of in my mind and I feel like the <laughs> Greek gods are punishing me. She's spoken cliches and she's like, you know, you've got to keep your good, you know, get those ideas, keep them in a drawer for when you need them, like when is the opportunity. And I was like, obviously good ideas are important 100% of the time. Like if you have a good idea, you just like tweet it, make a change.org partition, write a letter to your counselor, like, hello, mm-hmm. you don't put it in a drawer. And now I'm like, oh my God, the window of policy <laughs> is open. And our job is, you know, to survey what's there, help stimulate a sophisticated public conversation and then present government with cool ideas. And part of that is just elevating cool stuff that's going on very locally. What what we've already been finding and why cities matter so much is that so many of these interventions are hyperplace based. Right. So you could almost take like a postal code approach and say, where are the areas, if we want to focus on vulnerable youth especially, where are the areas in Canada that we need to be investing more in? I think as Canadians, we're pretty shy to do that. Um, But there's a lot of data that would suggest it would be a good idea because um, at the end of the day, parental income is highly deterministic of a young person's outcomes. Right. Instead, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, we're not we're not uh, drilling down that much right now. So kind of to like bring it back to to cities, maybe this is almost taking your question too literally, but. Why don't cities just hire some more young people, right? Like there's a, it strikes me that there's all kinds of skill sets that can be developed inside of a municipal administration. And, you know, yeah. and and it's also like, think about what that does. If you take someone who's just graduated out of a program and find the place where their set of skills works inside of the city, right? And give them, maybe it's an apprenticeship, maybe it's an internship, you know, maybe it's a w- work placement, whatever it is. And then they have the city of Toronto or the city of Edmonton on their resume, yeah. Right. And then that like, doesn't that well, serve a, holding, a big chunk? Yeah. It does. I mean, holding public institutions accountable f- just from a hiring perspective and, you know, reporting out and having them demonstrate leadership. Uh, procurement is another area that governments are in charge of where you could say a portion is, you know, going to go towards either businesses that employ a lot of young people or led by young people or have a certain component. Well, I guess I, I, that's sort of. Obviously, like cities, a lot of cities do that. Like cities, when they think about pathways to employment, they tend to think about providing pathways into the private sector, right? And I'm maybe we should, if if that's not working out as well as it could, like why don't we just, you know, find more pathways into the public sector, right? And like tap and sort of make the sales pitch that that helps, right? Like if you have a diversity of voices in terms of who works for your city and more young people, you're you're gonna in some way, maybe just solve some of those problems anyway, right? Just by virtue of having those voices at the table and and things like that. But I guess that's like kind of, that's like the higher order sales pitch, but like maybe cities just should actually be the destination, not just the provider of the pathway. Well, with, I mean, with public institutions, they're, they're still fairly stable, but when we look at how the world of work has changed, it's not just the rise of part-time work, it's that shift from manufacturing to a service-based economy. We see that a lot in cities, right? service jobs and their availability, but also um, how they can be less predictable. And just the rise of small and medium-sized businesses and kind of startups. These are places that can't necessarily offer you a contract for five years. You know, it's a small enterprise or it's a social enterprise or the growth of you're going to the nonprofit sector. I mean, that's an amazing sector that creates a lot of value, the kind of third sector in the economy, but it's also tends to, the institutions within them tend to be like 10 people or less, right? Uh, so Vass, you mentioned that where we're seeing more jobs and more employment maybe is the service sector. And so I imagine part of this is making jobs in the service sector more desirable and more long-term, more stable. Like, is that part of the equation for youth? For youth, it's actually not necessarily the long-term dimension, but youth tend to be employed in service and retail sectors, absolutely. And more and more, these employers are recognizing that these actually aren't forever jobs, but they have a benefit in terms of work experience, social skills, you know, learning different dimensions of a business. And I think one of the most interesting things I've come across in the service industry, you and I have Starbucks cups out, <laughs> and we mentioned what our Starbucks orders were earlier. Mine is a, a Grande Dark, I think. I was like, what is mine? Is that Starbucks 
has a program. So this is an employer-led intervention. They did it themselves where they have a hiring target of 10% opportunity youth, which really means kind of neat youth, not in employment uh, education or training. And they spend a little bit more investing in these people, but they actively go out and look for them and uh, train them. And they know they're not going to keep them forever. The goal is actually not to retain them forever. It's to give them that valuable work experience, get their foot in the door, get something on their resume, build customer service experience. And, you know, I'm not just trying to warm your heart by telling them that they're targeting these youth. What I really want to tell you is that after 20 hours, so once you hit part-time work, you actually get a full benefits package. Hmm. So, you know, there's something to be said there. We often talk about the portability of benefits. How do we design benefits that travel with people? Yes, we need to be thinking about that. And uh, I'm very interested in those discussions. But also, you know, who who gets benefits and, and when are they triggered? And is it going to be from that quote-unquote standard? And I'm like winking as I say that <laughs> form of work. Or are there other ways we might be uh, able to support people? That, that's an interesting, just like a tiny little mandate. Like if you can be Starbucks or you can be any other of these sort of retailers or service sort of jobs, and in some way there's an incentive for you to provide one additional skill that's relevant beyond the context of your, you know, sort of particular coffee pouring, clothes selling kind of environment. Like if you can be at Starbucks and then you get to be like, well, I was a barista for three years, but I learned this management skill or I did, I, I did purchasing and, you know, uh, inventory management or something like that. If you can require that like a certain portion of your time every year, something is dedicated to that. Yeah. That seems like a really kind of small thing that can give people that just that little extra piece that they might need to, to get over that first hurdle. Well, we're not even scratching the surface of the surface here, but you can participate in the conversation online with the hashtag youth panel. We have a final report due March 15th. It should be out. That's uh, my birthday. April. <laughs> Happy birthday. Draft of my report. My, I'll, I can't send you a copy till it's public, but. Luke is moving ever further from you <laughs> on that day. I will. I will put it in my calendar. Um, coming up next, we'll do a quick round of our thumbs up, thumbs down, and then we're out of here. The last round of thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay, everyone. So it's our last thumbs up, thumbs down with Vass. Um, Maybe I can go first for once. Yeah. Okay. You always Absolutely. save me for last. Well, we'll save the, the best. best for last. <laughs> okay. But you can go first today. Okay. I've got a big thumbs down for the York University student whose name I'm forgetting, but I probably shouldn't announce it on the podcast, who gave up on his tiny homes initiative <laughs> with shipping containers because I was really rooting for him and he had like a free ebook and he had done, you know, all this research on the regulations and the restrictions. And I, I hope that, you know, maybe it's because he's, you know, in school. I hope that he'll, he'll pick that up again. Thumbs down. Yeah. Well, you might have to pick up the torch on shipping <laughs> containers. The federal panel on yeah. shipping container housing. Yeah. Uh, recommendation one, locate them in the beer store parking <laughs> yeah. lot. Uh, I got sort of a, a mixed bag of thumbs. That sounds odd this week. Uh, so in Vancouver, it's cold this winter, and there's actually ice. And before we make fun of our Vancouver... They were fighting over salt. They were fighting over salt. I have a Canadian press story here. I'm just going to quote a little bit of it. Uh, the city offered residents two buckets of salt at 10 fire halls on Wednesday, but that was scaled back to one small bucket after all the salt was gone within an hour and more, and, ha and more had to be delivered. So thumbs up for that. City stepping in, providing some salt, you know, uh, rationing a little bit, making sure everybody gets a little bit. But then, I'm quoting again now, one man showed up at a fire hall with a pickup truck and tried to load it with garbage bins he had filled with salt, but firefighters strongly discouraged him from returning. Okay, thumbs down for that guy with a pickup truck. Don't do that. Take the salt you're allotted. Don't try to take extra. One online ad listed salt collected from a fire hall for sale for $50, and <laughs> the price went up to $80 according to someone. <laughs> That's uh, insulting. Insulting. Uh, and this spokesperson called the whole affair the salt apocalypse. So thumbs up 
Uh, that person needs to the- get on there like apocalypse lingo because you don't call it the salt apocalypse. You call it the salt apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. So I would go with salt apocalypse. I think that's better. That's a little note for Vancouver. Call it the salt apocalypse, not the salt apocalypse. Uh, so yeah, mixed bag, interesting stuff out in Vancouver. Uh, the only advice I would give as uh, from a city where we do deal with cold weather more often, uh, just chill a little bit, Vancouver. So many puns. <laughs> um, I'm going to give uh, a really big thumbs up uh, to sort of a, a circuit court in the state of New York. Uh, one of the biggest things that I've done all year uh, as a reporter at Metro is work on road safety issues. Uh, it's, it's some work that I'm really proud of, and I actually think we made a bit of a difference in sort of the discourse around road safety in the city. And um, that's something I'll always be able to sort of have and, and point to and sort of abstractly hope that maybe I've saved someone's life or something like that through journalism. So as I depart, you know, I'm trying to, to stay positive. But this court ruled that the city can actually be held liable in the event of a, a 12-year-old kid who was riding his bike and was hit by a car because they failed to conduct a traffic calming study in, in that neighborhood and, and didn't essentially do enough to uh, kind of operationalize road safety in, in that area. And that's a huge step, uh, especially in North America. If you talk to, to people in Europe or people in Sweden where Vision Zero is developed, the ultimate sort of responsibility for road safety from their perspective is on the entity that designed and maintains the roads. And that's a huge shift in how we think about this. We, we tend to have a really individualistic take on road safety, and it's the fault of the pedestrian or the fault of the driver or however we look at it. But this court's essentially saying that it's about design. And I think that's a really important move to make because, frankly, the best solution to road fatalities and road injuries is design. It's not chastising people. It's not enforcement. It's not even education campaigns. It's changing the way your roads work. And in doing so, they've potentially created something that could you know, really ripple outwards. And if this kind of starts to apply to other cities, they'll actually have to take this seriously and, and do the things that they're supposed to do. So uh, thumbs up to that judge. Uh, Definitely. You know, way to do it. So thanks all for listening. Uh, we'll see you again uh, next week. Uh, we hope your holidays were great and that you had a happy new year. Um, and as we go, I just want to say one last goodbye to Vass. It's been such a pleasure starting this podcast with you. Uh, and I hope uh, that your spirit carries through it, whatever we do. So thanks a lot for listening. Uh, you can find Vass and say goodbye to her on Twitter at, at VassB. Uh, please, you know, spam her with amusing stories and goodbyes and all your feel all your feels please and uh, as emotional as luke has been yeah there we go and uh yeah so uh we'll talk to you guys next week thanks This has been a Metro podcast.